Federal investment is fuel for modernizing our electric grid. But what can the utility industry do to make sure we get the most decarbonization for the money? Bryce chats with Michael Pesson of the U.S. Department of Energy, Commissioner Jennifer Potter of Hawaii PUC, and Bill Ritter of the Center for the New Energy Economy to get their take. This episode was recorded live at the Grid Forward 2021 annual meeting. Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. Well, welcome to uh, a live edition of our podcast series. We've tried this a couple times um, and it seemed to have worked before. So thank you all for, uh, for being a part of the annual meeting and, and welcome to our discussion that will wrap things up. Uh, usually we do these one-on-one, so this will be fun to do uh, kind of all four of us chatting. Um, Gerard, if you don't mind, you can throw that link to the recording or to the, uh, the article out uh, to the audience because we'll be kind of using that as the backdrop of our discussion. Um, Jenny, I think I'm going to kick my first question over to you. So in that article that I wrote, um, I highlighted kind of 10 aspects of the decarbonization future that felt, felt like they needed to get some momentum in order for grid operators to really be active in, in the roles that they're playing on the system. And the first point that I highlighted was scaling demand side. So I know you, that has a close pl- uh, place in its heart for you. Um, so maybe I can kick that first question. You know, what kind of a role does scaling demand side resources play as we decarbonize our grid? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to share the stage with these two distinguished gentlemen. So thank you very much. Um, so in in the state where I, you know, that I moved to in Hawaii, uh, there's uh, about one out of every three homes has photovoltaics on it. Um, so, so there's a tremendous amount of energy that's being produced. And in, in fact, the majority of in all renewable energy um, is, is, comes from the distributed photovoltaics. Um, and so in terms of being able to utilize and tap into that in a way that's just not you know, self-supply, this commission, as a result of the uh, a retirement of a coal plant, has set a very ambitious and um, and targeted goal for the utilities to retire other resources on the fossil fuel fleet, um, in particular about four of the generating resources within the next five years. So, um, and and the reason that we did that is we felt that you know there was inadequate planning um, along the way uh, to 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 get underway the type of decarbonization that we were looking for, and also just to reduce the pressure on on rates. We have the highest rates in the country. Um, and it's because we burn bunker fuel and it's all, all imported fuel. And uh, so distributed resources actually with the, with the retirement, our research, uh, the, we're expecting the retirement of a coal plant in 2022 of September, 2022, which is our peak season. Um, and it has to retire then by legislative mandate and also for air permits. There's, there, we just cannot continue operation of it. So there's no possibility of extending it. Um, and what, what was proposed as alternatives, everything has been postponed. So getting equipment to Hawaii 
photovoltaic systems, large batteries is a very cumbersome and challenging process and it takes years and years and years. And what we had expected was that we could do this within two years or three years. And it ends up being more like four and five years. So big delay between when we anticipate retirement of these very old fossil fuel plants and the coal plants and the, where's the gap there. Um, and the gap and how we're gonna fill that gap is distributed resources. And there's, there, that's really our, our one option. And, um, and, you know, and we are looking at a, an expedited, pro we just released an order on Monday, I think it was, um, that is an emergency demand response order. And it was actually more of a DER um, where we're going to be paying people for the entire, their entire battery to plug it into their PV system so that they can export that extra energy during the peak hours. Um, so we we've, do not have the, the ability or the visibility at this point to create virtual power plants with the distributed resources. But even as it is right now of what we have with just simply using a scheduled dispatch, we can rely on those resources. We anticipate being able to rely on those resources in order to bridge which a significant resource adequacy gap. Um, so. And we're not going to be the only ones that are in this position as, as there are more and more plants that are retired for not only economics, but also because of decarbonization um, agendas and renewable agendas, there is going to be gaps within, you know, what solar can provide um, large scale utility solar, and then what, what we need in order to deliver energy cost effectively on the distribution system to reduce what the needs are on the transmission system. So, I, th I think that it's absolutely critical that we start thinking of how we're going to integrate these resources in the long run um, to provide these services. And in our case, we're looking at these investments in these batteries to be about a 10-year investment. Um, so it's not as long as a PPA would be or an, IP, you know, an IPP agreement. So it allows us more flexibility to allow technology to evolve and potentially adopt things that are um, you know, cheaper or that are just of a different makeup. Um, so we can be more technology agnostic as we move through, through the years of trying to deploy more large scale solar and then in addition to um, more distributed resources. Well, thank you, Commissioner Potter. I know Hawaii is on the front edge of the decarbonization picture in general, and we're certainly pulling for you as you integrate demand side and distributed resources at scale. Um, Governor Ritter, Deputy uh, Secretary Pesson, I know you both could talk a lot about this topic, but we want to see how many of the 10 we can hash out in 30 minutes. So I'm going to send the second one to you, uh, Michael. Uh, I'm going to kind of combine two of my buckets here. So I have one on investing in advanced forecasting and modeling, and I had, an, had another on increasing the visibility in the system. I broke them out purposefully, but maybe you can talk a little bit about why is it so critical that we increase the frontier of what we can see and monitor and control on what's happening on the grid? Can you talk a little bit about that area? Yeah, thank you, Bryce, and thank you for having me on this broadcast. You know, Northwest is always dear to my heart. I spent almost three decades there, so I'm always happy to talk to you guys. So I'll start with a simple statement. You can't control what you can't see. Right? In order for you to be able to control the system, you need to have good visibility. And it becoming becoming even more important as you get more and more renewables. So in old days, the way we operated the grid, we were able to forecast loads and control generation. 
now we need to be able to forecast both generation and loads. So we, the importance of real-time situation awareness is significantly increasing. Uh, so the, in 2020, we had about 21% of generation generated by renewables. So the latest uh, Energy Information Administration estimate uh, is predicting doubling this by 2050, so over 40% which means we only gonna have more and more uh, challenges facing electric grid with the in, uh, renewable generation sources that, that we need to accommodate. So the other challenge is, you know, we have a lot of different utilities, different organizations, but we never had a holistic view on the entire North American system. So what Department of Energy have done over the last couple of years, we developed what we call NAR, North American Energy Resiliency Model. So this is the model that combines all electrical system for the entire North America, but not just electrical, but also some interdependent infrastructure. So the most important probably is natural gas, because as you know, dependence on natural gas is increasing, but also includes communication infrastructure because the dependence on ICT information communication technology is growing. So in order to be able to plan, you need to have a good modeling capabilities. And we also looking into enabling real-time situational awareness. So we plan to deploy um, high-fidelity sensors and uh, low-cost sensors that will be augmented by some data processing, uh, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. So it can show us what is happening on the grid and it will allow us to predict, uh, predict issues before they happen. It will help with condition-based maintenance. It will help with preventing wildfires. It will help with a lot of things, but it will require significant investments. So those two things, they're very closely related, visibility and modeling. So you need to have good uh, real-time data to validate your models, and you need to have good models to uh, enable actionable, actionable functionality. So visibility and controllability, those are the two things that we're trying to accomplish. Thanks, Michael. So for those following along, I might drive you a little nuts because we're going to get a little bit more free flow here. But 0.5 in this uh, 10 point area is consider R&D a core capability. So Governor Ritter, can you maybe talk a little bit about why a bit of a change to really embrace R&D and scaling innovation is just such a critical aspect to making the decarbonization future a reality? So I am um, involved in a project working with utilities. It's the four chairs of the Edison Electric Institute from last year, this year, next year, and the following year. So they don't necessarily have everybody at the EEI on board, but they're working with the imprimatur of EEI. And, and the, really the question is, how do you chart a path to net zero? Uh, Biden administration has 2035. Some of the utilities have said 2040 or 2045. Um, our utility XL, that's the biggest utility in uh, Colorado that's an investor owned utility has 85% reduction emissions by 2030. And what they'll say is they know how to get there. They know how to get to 75 or 80 or 85, but for most utilities in most areas of the United States, Hawaii may be the lone exception, getting to hundred is not something that they understand how to do that. Um, without there being some significant advancement in carbon capture and sequestration or advanced nuclear or something like that. And so for them, research and development is what we call the last mile. 
the last 15%, the last 20%. And uh, the one thing we're, we're actually working with these utilities, as well as a group of environmental NGOs to chart this path to, to net zero. And the one thing we all agree about is that it is absolutely critical that research and development plays a role in innovating us to that last 10, 15, 20%, whatever it is. However far you can get as a utility, they're, they're, they're you know, setting goals. 62 major utilities have set goals to get to some number by 2040 or 2045 or 2050. Many have set 2030 goals, but um, research and development is just such a critical part of it. And, and so I think that's why point number five is such a valid point. Uh, it's also, I think, the place where there's the most bipartisan agreement in the United States Senate, in the United States Congress, that R&D has to play a role in our path to decarbonization. So I want to keep working through the list, but Michael, you have any quick comments on R&D? I, 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 and Jenny, I, I, I figured you both probably would really, I saw a lot of head <laughs> nodding, so... Yeah, absolutely. So this is music to my ears. Uh, since I'm leading the R&D in the, in the electricity delivery space, so I'll talk about uh, delivery system and need for R&D. So I talked about uh, significant growth in renewables. So some of our analysis shows that we need to double or maybe even triple transmission capacity to accomplish administration goals of uh, decarbonized uh, electricity system by 2035. And that increased capacity can come from multiple uh, sources. So one is most obvious one is building new transmissions, but new transmission is, as we know, it's not that easy. There's a lot of issues, but I think, I believe we have a lot of un untapped, untapped uh, capacity in the existing transmission. So we, through R&D, we can enable increased capacity in existing right of ways. So some of the examples, the easy one I would use is dynamic line rating. So by implementing dynamic line rating, we can increase capacity. But the more advanced applications will be converting existing AC lines into HVDC. So high voltage DC conversion can triple the capacity in the same right away. But that requires significant investments in R&D because we don't want to invest in all technology. So the challenge in the utility industry, once you deploy a piece of hardware, it's going to stay there for 40, 50, or maybe even longer years. So we need to make sure that whatever we deploy can last that long and can be viable for that long. Not in the terms of reliability, but in terms of uh, functionality. So it can provide functionality that is will be required from the system in the long term, in the 40 years. So it, as they say in the investment world, hardware is hard. So it's very difficult to invest, to get investment money put in the, in the hardware. It's much easier in software world. So, and this is where we would like to focus more. Uh, we have very good investments made, very good progress made in software area. Like I mentioned this uh, North American resiliency model. So I would like to start focusing more on hardware space. And this is, I think, what will enable these future capabilities more uh, capacity and existing transmission, more resiliency. And last thing I will say, if you create your clean electric system, if you create your resilient electric system, we still need to be able to afford this electricity. So affordability is extremely important. So we have initiative of energy justice right now 
that is taken into consideration. How can you make sure that everyone can afford this, uh, can afford electricity going forward? Yeah. So Jenny, let me let me get a, sneak another one in there and you can combine it with R&D. But the ninth one, again, for those who are really, you know, uh, they're going to start going crazy. We're going to be jumping all around on this list. But the ninth one is about embracing change and business model evolution. And so maybe I can ask you to comment a little bit about why is it so important that we change the way grid operators work and the way that business models work in the electric industry space? And to the extent you want to address that with scaling R&D, feel, feel welcome. But maybe I'll kick this next one over to you. Excellent. Thank you. This is this is my favorite topic. So, <clears throat> but I, I want to tag on just a, a little bit to the R and D part, and you know, to to what Governor Ritter was actually talking about in terms of the last fifteen percent. Um, I think everyone is is aware, or sh if not, then he, here's a great point. Um, so, uh, Kauai um, Co-op is actually at about seventy percent renewable right now, and they operate thousands of hours at hundred percent. Um, but one thing that keeps happening is they have island-wide blackouts. Um, the problem is, is that they, there's, the inertia on the system is, is just so low. Uh, and what you've done is you've taken synchronous condensers or synchronous um, generators, and then you've now you're using inverter-based um, technology. And one of the things that's been that that is has been common is grid um, is grid following inverters. And those, those inverters uh, um, basically uh, are catastrophic to when you get to 70% penetration. Um, so you have oscillations in frequency, and then all of a sudden you have all this grid following and it just exacerbates what's happening on the grid. Um, so, you know, grid forming inverters, which are still in their infancy, they're not, there's no standardization for them. And we're still working on, you know, getting the hardware and the software worked out, but they're absolutely critical to where we're going in the future. And we need and we need innovation like that in order to make these types of systems. And you know, it, it operates as a microgrid. We do not have you know, any connection to any other resource, power resource. So it has to operate in op isolation. And so there, the learning curve that's happening at Kauai is, I mean, we could sell that around the world in terms of, of, you know, of the challenges of getting to such high levels of, of, of renewables and the challenges that come with that for grid operators, as well as, you know, just the technology itself. So, um, so research and development are absolutely going to be critical to where we're going uh, in a renewable future and a decarbonized renewable future. Um, so second point. <clears throat> so the, um, the, uh, in terms of the, the business models, we have had, um, you know, a hundred plus years working under the same regulatory structure and the regulatory compact, you know, that, um, and it, it has served its purpose and, and it's, it's time is up um, in terms of how we're looking at how power is going to be generated typically through IPPs, independent power producers, um, as also as a huge high, high levels of penetration of distributed energy resources as people continue to see the economic advantages of adopting those types of technologies, um, it's absolutely undermining the business models for the utilities. And that's only gonna get worse around the country as, as you know, we, we do retire and we pursue deep decarbonization. So how do you create a regulatory model that can best suit a new business model for the utility? So it's not, it's not just about how 
how the utilities business model needs to change because those are things that we've tackled with coupling and, and you know attrition relief mechanisms. Um, and so we've we've already done those things in a lot of states, multi-year rate plans, but have those been adequate to drive us, you know, towards where we need to go, where we are making R&D part of a utility business model and pilots that can be launched quickly in order to test those types of, of programs. Um, it, it, do we have the environment that's set up and flexible enough to do that? No, um, most of our regulatory structures are old and antiquated and do not permit, you know, it, you know, 18 month rate cases and cost of service models and, you know, things that just don't allow and permit the flexibility and the needs of the utility to basically make this transition work in a, in a financially viable way for them. And that means as regulators, we have to take a step back and say what's working, what isn't working, and what do we need to adjust in order to make sure that we're accomplishing you know, uh, an, a regulatory environment that allows for innovation, that allows for re research and development and, and for the utilities to move in a more timely way um, through, through the regulatory process. And so it, it's, it's important that we get ahead of the ball game instead of standing behind it and thinking about how we regulate utilities and, and what the utility business model will be in the future as we see the electric vehicle. I mean, people are like, oh, Hawaii's got this you know, PV issue that no one else is going to have to deal with. But with electric vehicles, everyone's going to have to deal with it. It's not, it's not something that's isolated and it's gonna change the business models of every single utility across the country. And we need to be prepared to basically respond as regulators to that very, um, that very challenge. Thank you, Jenny. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way you don't miss a single chat and learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now, back to the show. Well, let's keep going through our list. Governor Ritter, I'm going to send the next one to you. I'm going to take some liberty here and combine a couple as well. <laughs> so uh, I was talking to Elliot with Cal ISO, and his feedback really helped crystallize a couple that I wanted to make sure got in the list. Number eight in the list is really around diversifying assets. So having access to a number of different energy assets and having those all work on the system in tandem. And I mentioned some really kind of forward leaning um, technologies in that area. And number six is about utilizing projects of all sizes rather than having a label that was just around DERs. This was, we need assets that are, that are scaled, that are located, that are right sized for the, um, for the application. So Governor Ritter, maybe I can have you comment against some combination of those two uh, around a diversity of assets and around utility, you know, around assets of various sizes. Yeah, I was just on a earlier panel discussion and uh, the person who is the government affairs person for Pacificorp. It's a large utility in the West. It operates in, I think your home state as well as a variety of other home states or a variety of other Western states. And, you know, she said it's kind of all of the above. And Pacificor is, you know, utility that owns a lot of big assets. But she was also saying very much what Jennifer was saying is that um, this is going to be a world of distributed generation as well. XL Energy has a plan to put 1.5 million EVs in their catchment area. 
those energy vehicles become part or those electric vehicles become part of distributed energy storage. And so it's not going to be just one big asset. And interestingly, the prior problem I talked about getting to that last place, I think when Jennifer picked up on that and said, yeah, the last 15 or 20 or 25% is going to be made up of a lot of different things. I don't think we've innovated fully uh, what it will look like in 2035 or 2040, but it's likely to be a combination of things happening in the built environment. So greater efficiency for homes, but also using those houses as storage because they have batteries and electric vehicles as a part of that. They might even have you know, rooftop solar and storage that can be a part of that. And then the modernization of the entire grid. Uh, there may be some nuclear, there may be large nuclear, there may be advanced modular nuclear that's a part of that. They'll still look like the big part of the grid. But also what Michael said earlier about transmission is that if you think about us not knowing presently what it's going to look like, big, small, it is going to take a very different grid than the one that we have today. It's going to take a different way of regulating um, utilities. So that wraps in another part of it. It's all going to be very different, but so many things that we've sectored off. Like we said, the transportation sector is different than the power sector. That's different than the home sector, the, the built environment sector. That's all going to merge into this one thing connected by hopefully a very modern 21st century grid. And that gets us to the place of being able to decarbonize. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Governor. So I Michael, I'd be fascinated to ask you about hydrogen and fusion and, and all these other areas in there, but we're not going to go there right now. <laughs> uh, I don't want to diminish point four, which is around adjustment of rates and pricing, but that's a, a specific conversation I didn't want to take us down today. Um, I don't want to diminish point seven, which is about access to wide area markets. Clearly, that's going to play a really key role as, as the grid decarbonizes. Um, but point 10, you touched a little bit on it, Michael, so I'll kick this one over to you. When, when utilities hear the word integrate, they think resource asset. But I said integrate the talent of the future, right? So how are grid operators, utilities, energy companies going to be able to compete against Google and, and Apple and Microsoft and bring the best and brightest into solving this equation? Um, because I think that the talent has to be there to solve this decarbonization uh, yeah, opportunity. It's yeah, thank you, Bryce. This is an excellent question. If you find the solution to the way of competing with Google and Amazon and Microsoft, let me know. <laughs> I'd like to hear that. Uh, but having said that, so there is a lot of talented people. I, on my team, the people who I have are just amazing. They're very talented. They're very motivated. And they're doing this because they love public service. So they love doing this. But utilities need to uh, attract new generation, new people. So I've been trying to do it. For, as I said, I spent almost three decades in the utilities in the Northwest. And I always was trying to attract new type of talent. And utilities in the past used to be boring, but they're not anymore. It's very exciting place to be. You need new skills. And these new skills need to be developed specific to these utility applications. Uh, so we, like Department of Energy is working with a lot of universities developing this new talent. So we're reaching out to communities. And for utilities, it's not just universities. It doesn't mean you need to have more PhDs. We need to have skill, skilled labor that can uh, support the future applications. Uh, speaking of utility uh, operation, utility model, so I want to follow on something Governor said and Jennifer said. Well, I expect us to have a step change in the way we operate. 
electric utility. And going back to delivery system, we talked about more and more uh, distributed resources, distributed generation on, on distribution side. We talk more, we talk talking about a lot more need for transmission. So what I see happening is a line between transmission and distribution is more and more blurring. So transmission and distribution becoming part of the one what I starting to call EDS, electricity delivery system. So when you do your, for example, adequacy resource, resource adequacy planning, you need to consider generation and distribution side now. So you need to train people to think differently. So you need to have these new, new skills. You need to teach people to understand not just power engineering, for example, but you need people to understand all this comple uh, complexity of data science, of artificial intelligence, uh, of uh, data communications. So you really need to have new type of workforce. And this workforce needs to be, need to be trained, attracted, retained. So there's a big challenge ahead of utility industry. Yeah. So we're a little over time. Hopefully it's okay if we just drop one more question in here. Jenny, I'm going to send it to you because you mentioned it. Um, I, I, I stopped at 10, right? There's a lot of things that are necessary to decarbonize the grid and have grid operators really embrace this actively. But I'll call the bonus or the X factor electrification, right? <coughs> Load growth has been anemic for most jurisdictions, but... As we electrify transportation, this may be changing. This likely will be changing. So can you have just a couple quick remarks as far as electrification broadly or electrification of transportation and really what that means for the decarbonization agenda? So the, the way that I look at this is, is really deep decarbonization will need to be addressed on a sector by sector basis. And it's going to take a different type of of mechanism to address each of those. Like agriculture isn't going to be the same as, you know, as, as we would have with um, transportation. But if we tackle transportation in a way with, um, with, in, with it, not only innovation, um, because we're, we're gonna have to think of different ways that we build the infrastructure, you know, within our service territories, um, but, but also perhaps incentives, right? I mean, there, there's incentives for not only the consumer, but for the utility, but also a developer for, you know, for all, except for the commission, we don't get any incentives, but, <laughs> but there are players along the way that, that there's value that they're adding to society by undertaking electrification or transportation or, or building electrification that will, that if, if in the industry, we set the standard with, some type of, of, of innovative incentive that allows there to be, there, there's got to be a leader, right? There has to be a, a leader in this and people will follow. There's, it's not that we can see, you know, based on even the, the conversations that we had in Madrid around climate change, um, there was little agreement that came out of that. Um, so you can have a whole body of people with the same kind of interests in mind, um, but that's not necessarily going to be the, the way that we accomplish you know, um, the, the goals that we have set forth. So if we think about and we isolate transportation, electrification of transportation or building electrification and, you know, and think about what it is that we need to do to either incentivize to accelerate that and, and bring in innovation um, and in a way that, because expenses obviously are, are always, costs are going to be of concern, um, then, then we can get a lot closer to to you know how we how we electrify in a way that's going to be more sustainable for our grids, and also because um, right now it just seems like there's a ton of players that are um, that are 
in a space that aren't necessarily collaborating and, and we've got utilities doing their own thing. And, um, and so how, how can we find a leader in this space that can help develop a structure and incentive? Maybe it comes from the federal government. Maybe it's something that's, you know, that's something, if that, if that has to be, that, that that could be a model that's actually replicated around the world. But um, I think, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's great. So we're at our time, but let's close up. Governor Ritter, any topics that we haven't covered or anything you want to loop back on? What's what, that's just so critical as, as the grid decarbonizes? Well, I think if we're talking about grid decarbonization, one of the things we talk about here in the West is the need to regionalize in a bigger way. Uh, we have all these states that have passed these significant goals, climate goals, um, Oregon, Washington, uh, Nevada, New Mexico, California, Colorado, in the Intermountain West alone. And, you know, um, one of the things that would help is if we were doing planning uh, for transmission, transmission siting, even for resource planning as a region, or even if we did it regionally without supplanting the efforts of the utility commissioners, then you can pick up um, a lot of resources that can help supply the kind of necessary clean power to other places in the region. And, and it would just take really a, a, a larger planning process plus a modernization of the grid that could make a big difference in the West where decarbonization is concerned. And, and that's true of some other places around the country as well, the Southeast, which um, could benefit from that too. Michael, any last thoughts? Uh, you know, what, what's so critical to have in mind is this. Yeah, so I think what in closing, I want to highlight just one point. So I think I made it clear that I, I believe that we're facing major transformation in the industry. And of course, we need a lot of innovation in a lot of R&D investments, but technology by itself cannot solve all your problems. So I always talk about this as a three-legged stool. You have technology, you have markets, and you have policies. So you need to have markets that support, support technology adoption and for markets to exist, you need to have the right policies. So we need to work together to make sure that we develop policies that promote adoption of these new technologies that can enable future markets that support all the goals of administration and all the goals they want to accomplish going forward. Thank you, Michael. Last word, Commissioner Potter, you, get, you, you all are trekking towards deep decarbonization. What, what comes to mind to loop back on or that we haven't talked about that's just really critical? You know, I think the biggest challenge is how, you know, we can wean ourselves off oil um, in, and, you know, and, and, and the fuels um, it's, it's, that's just going to be so such a tremendous lift um, that, that it's, yeah, I mean, 2045 seems like it's far away, but it's not, not as quickly, you know, it's, it's so quickly approaching. Um, but so that's, that's my Get last started. Do it. Yeah, we got, we have, we needed to start 10 years ago, you know, so. <laughs> well, well, thank you all for your fantastic insights. We covered an amazing amount of waterfront in a short amount of time. Thank you everybody for, for listening into our discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.